Hello and welcome to a very special edition of our Tag One Team Talk show. This is our second in a series about the Drupal Association and our series sharing space with the Drupal Association's engineering team. Today is a really big day for both of our organizations, Tag One and the Drupal Association. After four and a half years of hard work and development, Drupal 9 was just released recently. And in today's episode, we are gonna cover and really, really shine a light on the Drupal Association's critical role in supporting the build and the release of new versions of one of the most important and largest open source projects in the world. We're also gonna cover what we're gonna be doing in the future of Drupal and exactly where we're headed from here in terms of Drupal's roadmap. I'm Preston So, I'm the moderator of uh, Tag One Team Talks and I'm the host and editor in chief um, of this series. I'm joined today by a very, very cherished guest of ours today, We've got uh, Tim Lennon joining us from Portland, Oregon, CTO of the Drupal Association. Neil Drum with me in spirit here in New York City. We're not in the same room, but we are uh, relatively close to each other. Senior technologist, the Drupal Association, and Drupal 5 core committer. Neil, by the way, was responsible for really defining the core committer role in the Drupal ecosystem. So thanks for joining us, Neil. And we're also joined today by Narayan Newton also based in Portland, Chief Technology Officer at Tag1, as well as Michael Myers, who's located currently in the Berkshires, Massachusetts, Managing Director at Tag1. I'm located here in New York City, and it's a real pleasure to have you all here today. So just as a first question, you know, I think everyone's really, really interested in Drupal 9, but let's take a little bit of a closer look at everyone who made it possible. What is exactly the Drupal Association's role in creating and fostering and, and releasing this new major version of Drupal? Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot to say here because, you know, being one of these largest open source projects in the world, Drupal is created by the whole community and the Drupal Association's job is to foster that effort and support it to build the tools that let the community build Drupal, as we always say. So, you know, in our case, that means maintaining uh, things we've talked about on this podcast before, Drupal CI, the Drupal.org issue queues, the GitLab code hosting itself the way that we package and release uh, new versions of Drupal and various other tools that are used to support it. But then Drupal itself is built by, in this case, I think there was something like 5,200 contributors who were credited in the process that led up to the release of Drupal 9 all over the, the from 8.0 all over the last four and a half years for different features that got in. And then the whole core maintainer team, which has representatives from a variety of organizations who help move forward specific initiatives and uh, choose what has met the quality standards to actually make it into core. So, you know, they're really responsible for, for building the software itself, but we're thrilled to be a part of that story and to support that effort and, and make it work. And, you know, there's, there's always new things that have to happen for every new major version. So. Absolutely. And I understand as well that, you know, one of the things that I think people often forget about the Drupal Association is obviously they're a very, very important force behind Drupal, behind all of the foundations of Drupal. And I understand that, Neil, you worked on some of these services um, that were required to be updated for Drupal 9. These are really, really important and key components of the Drupal ecosystem. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the things that, some of these services that you needed to update? Yeah. So... Some were uh, more routine, like uh, Drupal CI, adding new environments for new versions of databases and PHP to support the packaging pipeline that was rebuilt for Drupal 8.8. .8. Our my coworker Ryan headed that up. And what the packaging pipeline is, is what generates the tar, tar balls, which you download uh, if you download Drupal, including 
if you're using Composer underneath, it's downloading, downloading those as well. And that added a lot of extra Composer support for Core in 8.8. .8. So that was really the point where we moved from Drupal, sometimes using Composer, to actually supporting Co Composer as a first-class citizen for installing Core. And a lot of what I did was around semantic versioning for contributed modules. So in the past, contributed modules were 7x dash whatever, 8x dash whatever. They had an API compatibility prefix. But now that contrib modules can be compatible with 8 and 9 and you know, 10, 11 into the future, that prefix just doesn't make sense. So it was time to take that off and at the same time add that patch level version number and uh, use Semfer. So going through our code base, throughout packaging, localization, and you know, everywhere that version numbers might be and auditing to see what needed to be updated because we had little bits of code parsing those all over the place. And on the core side of that, core uses the version numbers too. Uh, so Ted Bowman put in a lot of work for getting core to actually be able to handle semantic versioning in, in Contrib. Neil, is semantic versioning, did that come into Drupal 9 because this is the point where 8 and 9 are both going to have to be supported by Contrib and that's the point where it doesn't make sense to not have it? Yep. Yeah, okay. yeah, we didn't want to... I actually never quite got that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we didn't want people to start making uh, 9x dash whatever releases uh, because really everything, any module you make right now probably is going to be compatible with both Drupal 8 and 9. I've got a question for you, Neil, about that. And forgive my ignorance on this because, you know, it's been a long time since I've uh, upgraded a module uh, from version to version, but does the new semantic versioning system in Drupal mean that, for example, you know, we had that recent wave of updates to modules that just needed that single number change in that info.yaml file. Does semantic versioning change the need for that? Or how does that evolve how we handle, let's say, how modules are registered in Drupal.org? I don't know if it makes any yeah, it gives module authors uh, more options for making a patch releases and major releases. And, you know, they can do the whole schedule like Core does and support, you know, two or three branches at once, or they can do more simply keep releasing in a straight line, but have more options to communicate how big, and, uh, big of an update each, each release is. And yeah, if they you'll still be using some 8x dash whatever modules with 9, since 9 does uh, support the Drupal 8 modules. And it's not really a need to move to semantic versioning until uh, you're releasing a new major version. Wonderful. Well, I know that semantic versioning was a colossal amount of work. Obviously, you have a lot of different pieces to juggle, a lot of moving parts. So uh, uh, props to everyone on the team for that. And I also understand that you needed to update the Drupal.org API. Is that correct, too? That is probably api.drupal.org. So routinely, just every six months, we add a new version of core to be parsed by api.drupal.org. Yeah, a big part of the, the API subsite, which, which itself, for those who are listening who might not know, actually parses out the like doc block style documentation within the code base of drupal.org and provides API documentation. Making sure that that supports the next major version and every six month release version is really important. 
And similarly, that's effectively uh, a, you know, a documentation site. And there's also the community governed documentation on Drupal.org as well, which is another area that's gotten some major updates because we're in this new situation where Drupal is becoming an evergreen piece of software. So it doesn't make sense to have a separate, you know, having a separate Drupal 7 documentation where the architecture is so different, totally makes sense. But having completely duplicated documentation for Drupal 8 and Drupal 9 really doesn't make sense anymore. So we've actually begun the process of merging that together and um, providing version specific callouts so that where there are distinctions that are important, we can do that but we don't have two copies of, of every, every way of doing things uh, when they're fundamentally architecturally similar. Well, as someone who routinely goes to api.drupal.org, I can definitely attest to just how useful and rich that site is and, and just the amount of maintenance it must take and the amount of thinking that must go into it is, is pretty significant. So I wanna to switch to a different topic now and kind of learn a little bit about the future of what's coming in Drupal 9. I think we've touched on this topic in a previous episode, but out of curiosity, you know, is the Drupal Association involved in setting the Drupal roadmap? Do you all define the next product milestones for the Drupal roadmap? What's the involvement of the DA look like here? Yeah, this is another really interesting question and it's something that's evolved a little bit over the years. I'll keep it brief because we have talked about it somewhat before, but you know, we don't, historically, the Drupal Association has not been involved in setting the roadmap really at all, if we go back to the founding of the DA. But over, the, over recent years, as Drupal.org services like the update service, the localization service, the composer facade, all of these other elements really become part of Drupal the product, then Drupal.org becomes part of Drupal. And so the DA has increasingly been, become involved in uh, the discussion about roadmap and the discussion about initiatives. So we meet with CORE on a monthly basis just to make sure that we're on the same page about supporting each other with what's going on. And more recently, we've been involved in leading and proposing some initiatives for CORE <laughs> ourselves. And that's how the first phase of the automatic updates work that we talked about in the previous episode started and a number of other things that have been going on in the background. So moving forward, that's going to continue to be true. We've already begun some discussion about some possible additional initiatives for Drupal 9's life cycle. And those might be things like, well, they almost certainly will include the next generation of auto updates work, perhaps some work to add telemetry to Drupal so that we can learn more about how it's being used and share that with maintainers. And so it's a collaborative effort. It's still primarily led by the core maintainer team, the sort of open source volunteers who, who really lead those initiatives, but we're becoming more and more involved. That's amazing to hear. And I think, um, you know, one of the things I'm curious about, though, is that, you know, I think a lot of what we hear about from the Drupal Association revolves around the underlying technology and shepherding the project and, you know, um, uh, holding these events. But, but, you know, from what I understand, you do a lot more than just technology and engineering and, and some of the things like DrupalCon. There's a lot more that goes into the Drupal Association's work. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's reflected in the Drupal project's culture of what contribution means, right? Contribution isn't just code. And in the same way that contribution is not just code, the work of the association and the work of the project is not just technical work. So there's a lot that we do that's about fostering community in various ways, about creating space to build community, whether that's virtual space or space at conferences and things like that. And also just the, the, 
the whole side of promoting Drupal to the world and marketing it to the world. It's very easy for us to talk to each other. We have such a big community that we could spend all our energy just, um, just preaching to the choir, as it were. But it's, of course, important for us to evangelize Drupal and to tell everyone out there what's new, why they should revisit it if it's been a while since they've taken a look. So that's always a big part of the work we do as well. And you know, we're a small team. We don't have a formal like graphic designer on staff. We don't have all that. So even all of us, even on the technical side, in some way get involved on the, in this community management or promotional element or membership support or all of those things. So it becomes part of the work too. Thanks, Tim. Well, I'm going to go ahead and open the can of worms that I think uh, everyone's kind of curious about. Drupal 9 is here. And um, I think everyone's kind of curious, you know, is this going to be a challenging upgrade cycle or what's involved? So uh, I guess my question for, for you all here today is, you know, you know, we've got a lot of people who are watching this. They're, they're looking at Drupal 9. They're excited about all of the advancements, but they're a little bit wary about the upgrade process. So what can an organization that is looking at um, moving to Drupal 9, based on the work that you all have done, the incredible progress and the incredible advancements you've made in, in, in all of these aspects of uh, Drupal's ecosystem, what are some of the things that you've built or improved on that allow for these organizations to move to Drupal 9 more quickly or in a more kind of uh, uh, rich way? Let me, I'll, I'll talk briefly about the Drupal 9 update process in general and then turn it over to Neil to talk about some of the tools that he's collaborated on with some folks in the community and that the team has collaborated on that are really incredibly helpful as well and have been helpful to module maintainers. But as a general rule, we've been sort of talking around this at the beginning of this call. Drupal 8 and Drupal 9 are fundamentally architecturally similar. They, you know, Drupal 9.0, the release that just came out, has the same features and functionalities Drupal 8.9, which also just came out, except that it's moved to the latest version of underlying libraries and removed deprecated code. So this means that anybody who's running an up-to-date version of Drupal 8 is probably ready to do this update just as easily as any minor version update that they've done over the course of the eight life cycle. Like the only thing that they need to double check is that the contributed uh, modules that they're using and any custom code that they're using is actually ready for nine as well, has removed those deprecations and is on that latest uh, implementation of the nine architecture. So what's kind of shocking about this is on the release day, as people were sort of celebrating the release around the world, we were getting tweets and people posting in the Drupal Slack saying, I've just done the upgrade, like literally as the release was happening, basically. And huge portions of the contributed ecosystem were compatible even before release day, which to my memory has not happened before for a Drupal release. So in that sense, it's super incredible. But at the same time, there's gonna be people out there listening who still have uh, a bunch of legacy custom code or who still have a variety of other modules and they're not sure whether or not they're compatible yet. So there are some awesome tools that are going to support that. So I'll let, I'll let Neil talk about a few of those different things that people can use. Yeah. And really we didn't build uh, any of these ourselves. We helped out with some of them, but these are all very much community driven. There's stuff like the upgrade status module, Drupal check and Drupal rector. Those are worked on by Gabor Hachi and Ted Bowman and some of the people at Palantir. And really what they were able to do is leverage some of the more modern coding in, uh, that's 
Drupal's been moving to uh, modern PHP and Drupal Rector will, for example, transform deprecated code into the more current equivalent. So it will give you patches for removing a lot of deprecations. I think they have pretty good coverage now. And the bit we, the little part we helped out with was they wanted to run these on all, all contrib projects hosted on drupal.org. So we were able to work with Ted Bowman to get a script together to do the, do the and throw that onto Drupal CI. I used a large AWS instance and get patches for every contrib module in about five hours. And he's going through and having that, those be posted to issue queues for contrib projects. So maintainers will see those and hopefully apply them. And I think they have been applying those patches. And the same tools can be used for your custom code. So there's a good chance uh, your custom code will be easily patchable to be compatible with Drupal 9. Well, I can definitely say that I've seen so many people in the Drupal community and contributors and module maintainers so excited about the ability to just run a bot and have every single kind of change they need to make be very clearly laid out in front of them. So it's, it's a really wonderful tool. And now I want to go into a different part of the stack here. You know, I think we've talked about Drupal and, you know, the actual kind of Drupal CMS, but I think there's a lot of people who are also really, really concerned and worried, maybe not, you know, maybe not as much as they should be about the infrastructural kind of considerations. How does hosting Drupal 9 change? How does kind of the underlying foundation of Drupal 9 change for those who are hosting their own kind of Drupal 9 installations? What does that look like in this new version? Maybe Narayan wants to speak to this in a little bit more detail and then talk about some of the things we're doing in our own environment. But, you know, there's the, the, the place to start is the system requirements have been updated pretty notably because, you know, PHP has been releasing new versions. There's new versions of PHP 7 and some of these older versions that even some common hosting providers kept current are out of date and in some cases unsupported by the PHP project itself anymore. So, you know, in, in an interesting way, open source projects like Drupal and, and others in the PHP ecosystem act by releasing software that increases these requirements helps to move the hosting industry forward and get their infrastructure further up to date. But Narayan, do you want to say a little bit more about that side of things? Sure. In a pretty real way, and not surprisingly, hosting Drupal 9 and Drupal 8 are similar. And they have similar issues because usually you're coming into an environment like ours that has legacy code, Drupal 7, sometimes Drupal 6 sites that are not going away. Increasingly, you're not running one monolithic site, but you're running subsites, and we certainly run a lot of subsites. Drupal.org is very much not a brochureware site. Like we have a lot of pretty complicated legacy code and integrations. So those things don't go away, which means you end up basically having to run different full platforms under these different uh, Drupal versions. How we do that is sort of up to how you want to run the infrastructure. I've done that with, they're called, it's called a slotted installation of PHP, where you have multiple versions of PHP or PHP FPM running concurrently. That can be fine. And in fact, we do that already to some extent to have different pools for the different subsites, pools of PHP executors, so that 
they can be tuned differently and so that each one can run as a different security context so we can kind of isolate the sites but going to Drupal 8, Drupal 9 kind of makes that more difficult. What we've done other places not on the Drupal org infrastructure yet is actually use containers for this and treat the Drupal 8, Drupal 9 upgrade as a opportunity to switch to a more containerized workflow because it can be more maintainable than slotted PHP installations. It's likely that on the Drupal org infrastructure, we're going to do somewhere there, but it's a very large workflow change. So it's just going to take some work to move to that. Although it helps that a lot of the people on the team do have experience with that in other projects. Other than PHP version, we aren't really going to have a lot of platform changes underneath that but PHP version is more than enough to <laughs> require some significant changes to how we roll things out currently. Wonderful. And, you know, I think that there's, you know, obviously there's those kinds of considerations that are really important. And the thing I'm really curious about as well is, you know, we've talked about Drupal, the CMS, we've talked about some of the infrastructure and, but I'm kind of curious, you know, what does the new major version of Drupal mean for Drupal.org itself? And how does Drupal.org kind of, uh, evolve in light of Drupal 9. Is Drupal.org already on Drupal 9? How, how's, how's things looking there? Gosh, I wish I could be saying yes right now. Um, <laughs> I'm so tempted to just say, sure. Um, but no, uh, we're not on Drupal 9 yet. And actually, the majority of Drupal.org is Drupal 7. And people who use groups.drupal.org will know that we have one Drupal 6 site still left on long-term support. So that's that puts us in an interesting situation. It means that we, like I think many of the listeners to this podcast, are sort of legacy Drupal 7 users. Drupal 7 was, you know, the, the banner version, the, the, the kind of zeitgeist moment in Drupal's version history up to this point, and had just the, the vast majority of Drupal sites. And there's a lot of people who, even through the 8 lifecycle, have been still wondering how to make that, that leap and make that jump. And so there's some things that we're planning on doing that I think um, will be interesting to a lot of other folks. And I'd love to get into that in just a second. Really quickly, in the, in the more minor, or in the more urgent and specific case, what a new major version means is often more traffic and more load to Drupal.org. We actually just have to get ready for the fact that we're going to get a lot more attention. So Narayan spent some time with us working on just some performance and scaling stuff, some effectively like load protection denial of service protection kinds of work just in a couple days before the release to make sure we were ready in case there was a, a big pickup in interest. And maybe you could hit the highlights of some of those little things, and then we can talk about some of our, our, our plans for Drupal.org's upgrade. Yeah, we have in the past 10 or so years learned that if you create a landing page for a release, you should probably make sure it performs relatively well. <laughs> I forget which release we didn't do that for, but it was very notable day of. <laughs> there's always going to be one page that people choose to link to when they post the story that there's a new release of Drupal to Reddit or Y Combinator or what have you, Twitter. And so it's important to make sure that that page performs well and, if possible, is entirely cached. There have been releases of Drupal that we actually force cache that page at the CDN. So 
I'm not sure how many people noticed, but some releases, not this release, you would be logged in and then go to the download or welcome page for that release. And suddenly it would appear like you were logged out because that page was being anonymously driven from our, from our CDN, not actually from the VMs running the site. This release, we did not have to do that, but we did look extensively at the performance of that page and a few other pages. Neil did a lot of good work on the performance of just the generic page types that were going to be hit. And then we made sure that we understood the performance of our anonymous pages delivered through our CDN network to make sure that the vast majority of traffic that gets driven from release, which is just anonymous people clicking on a link, that all of that would be cached well and cached at the edge. We also do some CDN level caching for our repository viewer and GitLab to make sure that links that are going to be re-downloaded a lot and possibly scripted are buffered at the edge. We've also learned that that's important for release day, especially in the age of Composer. And also we always, we have the tools that we've talked about before, Datadog for logging and Perimeter X to keep an eye on bad actors during release day, which is something that is somewhat new for the past few releases, but has become a bigger concern. We have people that will be testing out various layer seven denial of service attacks leading up to release to try to cause trouble for release because it's fun. We have people that will find the email address of the infrastructure team and add them to numerous mailing lists just to flood inboxes to prevent work. We had some, this time, some mailman subscription spam that we're working around. So the security aspect of this is also there. The security slash harassment side is there as well and needs to be prepared for. Uh, this one went fairly well though. And Ryan, I think you just mentioned, you know, some, some really interesting kind of tools that really are important for protecting against, obviously, some of these really, really tough attacks from nefarious actors. And I'm, you know, I think there's a lot of really interesting learnings that um, obviously the Drupal Association has gained. You know, some of these tools that you just mentioned, you know, Perimeter X, for example, are these things that other organizations that are running on Drupal can use as well? Sure. Perimeter X is an interesting example because it's a very large application. But if you're really having issues with bad actors and distinguishing between them and legitimate use, uh, Drupal.org is an interesting case because there's a lot of legitimate use of Drupal.org that for a normal site would definitely not be legitimate. But it's totally fine for people to be scripting things around Drupal.org and we want to allow that. So the detection of that versus an actual bad actor that's trying to repeatedly exercise a known bad path on the site to try to cause load problems is difficult. And Perimeter X is one of the tools that we use that has been really excellent at that. And they have a support team that will work with you to configure their tool better for you, which is useful because it is a very complicated tool with a lot of rules that we don't necessarily want to become an expert at. Also, it integrates with Fastly, our CDN, 
So the actual varnish VCL and Fastly for our site, you can see where it calls into the PrimaDirects platform and what it's doing specifically, which is very nice for both us knowing what's happening and also, you know, we're an open source project and we kind of want to know what is happening with our traffic. So yeah, they've been very nice to work with. They would be a great tool if you are a site that is at risk for this sort of thing. There are obviously lesser tools than that as you would build up to that, but Fernrex is something to think about, certainly. Absolutely. And a lot of these considerations that you just mentioned, you know, I think they're, they're obviously a top of mind for a lot of performance and scalability folks. And actually here on the Tag1 Team Talk Show, we just covered uh, a new open source project from Tag1 called uh, Goose. It's a load testing tool written in uh, Rust. And please check out that episode for anyone who's interested in load testing and uh, scalability. So let's go back to kind of your topic, Tim, that you just mentioned here. You know, what, so what's exactly the kind of what's, what steps ahead are there for Drupal.org in terms of getting to Drupal 9? I understand that it's not quite at, on Drupal 9 yet. I don't want you to, you know, give me a, a date today, but what's involved in making that happen? Yeah, so it's a really good question. We've been talking about different architectural solutions to accomplish this for a little bit, for a little while now. And I think, you know, don't hold me to this because we may, we may evolve the plan a little bit further, but I think we've landed on a plan that's really quite promising. So it involves a number of things that Narayan alluded to earlier in terms of either slicing or containerizing different parts of the infrastructure so that we can simultaneously have, you know, some of our subsites on Drupal 9 and some of our sites on, on still on Drupal 7 while we're sort of in process on the migration. I think to step back, like the most important goal for us is that we don't have this like two year blackout where there's no new features and there's no support that advances the community because we're just busy trying to do a big platform migration, right? Like that's not a situation anybody would ever want to be in. And we don't really need to be in that. It's not, it's not a place where we uh, have to find ourselves. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be that kind of lift, but we need to be clever about how we do it. And I think our ultimate approach is for some of the smaller subsites, so api.drupal.org or jobs or localize perhaps, we'll probably do a more traditional, you know, replatform from the current D7 site into a Drupal 9 site. And that'll be relatively straightforward the way that you might imagine any kind of regular changeover. For certain other sites, there's the still uh, a remnant of the legacy association subsite. Most of that, what we've actually done is moved it into Drupal.org itself as a section of the main www.drupal.org. And like the only thing still running there is when we run elections and we're going to migrate that off too. So rather than finding ourselves replatforming all of these sites, we're going to try and sunset some of them and, you know, remove some technical debt, clean things up as much as we can and where we need to maybe migrate some functionality into where it's more useful. We're, we're taking a similar approach with groups. But then finally there's, you know, Drupal.org itself, the main site, www.drupal.org, which has, you know, it's the largest site by far, and it has a variety of user activity, marketing activity, uh, resources. It does a lot of things. And so for that site, we're considering an approach where we would basically run the seven site and a nine site simultaneously and use the CDN layer to redirect you to the appropriate site based on the path. So for example, if we if we built the sort of front, front end of Drupal.org and kind of the marketing content 
on Drupal 9 as an early part in the process. We could use the CDN to direct people to any of those paths to the Drupal 9 site. But then as soon as they click over to say the issue queues, if those aren't ready yet, that could bring them back to uh, the seven site that's still in the progress of being updated. And that way we can actually progressively update this large monolithic complex site based on different paths and areas of the site that, that have kind of discrete components. So that's conceptually what we're thinking about doing. And there's considerations there. We'd have to manage identity. We don't want you to suddenly be logging in in two different places at once if we can help it. We have to, you know, think about different places where data might be fed from a view of a seven site into a, sec into a section that we're now trying to move to a ninth site and make sure we can do all of that. But in principle, I think that's going to be a way that we can deliver a migration for Drupal.org as a large site, and yet still have capacity on our very small team to be delivering features and support for the project as a whole. We don't want to stop that just to undertake this migration. So that's, that's I think, what we're going to try and do. And I think, I think it's an approach that could be very useful to some of the listeners out there who may have, find themselves in a similar position if they have a large, you know, a large installation and there's these discrete components that they need to, that they'd like to tackle one at a time without having to just wait to the end to, you know, switch over all at once. There's one case study on drupal.org. If you search for the, I believe it's the MuleSoft case study, they used a similar approach. They did the CDN path-based redirection for different sections of the site when they did their eight migration. And I think that might have some useful information for anybody listening who thinks oh, maybe we should try that. See, Drupal can be a microservice. <laughs> well, you know, we'll see, we'll see if one day if Drupal becomes a, a service mesh potentially, consisting of multiple uh, services. We'll see. Anyways, <laughs> maybe a very, very long discussion, not outside, not, not in the scope of this particular episode. When we have the Drupal um, 11 tag team talk, then maybe we, we would Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, one thing I know I'll be doing this weekend, by the way, is I will definitely be, you know, over the course of the next few months, I'll be looking at some of my favorite pages on Drupal.org and looking at that meta tag generator to see which version it's on because I'm really curious about this strategy and I really want to see which parts of you know I want to see if I can predict your roadmap a little bit by seeing hey okay so they're working on localized first now they're working on groups okay you know now I know so I can kind of uh, sneak in with a few tweets we'll see <laughs> so um, one thing I did want to want to want to note by the way Tim you said something about 10 minutes ago that I think uh, you know we glossed over a little bit and that mm -hmm. is you know you mentioned uh, and I, you know, I'll quote you directly. You said, Drupal.org is not brochureware. It's a very complex and a very involved custom Drupal site. One of the things I wanted to ask about is, you know, this is a very challenging implementation to manage. What is it like to be cleaning up all this technical debt? You know, what's it like from the inside for people who are out in the wild who are, who are also thinking about some of these maintenance challenges and, and management challenges? You know, it's interesting. I'll, I'll actually, I think I'll let Neil speak to some of this because he's been on the engineering side of, of Drupal.org in terms of this custom code and where a lot of this came from going way, way back to through many major versions of Drupal. And I think he has a, a unique perspective on this. Similarly, Narayan's been supporting it for an infrastructure side for quite a long time. Yeah, Neil and I created most of this technical, technical debt, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, you know, to be fair, that is some of it we create for ourselves. What I will say in general is, I, I, as someone who manages a technical team, I have never seen um, an engineer more happy than when they can 
you know, when the, then when there are more deletions than insertions in their next Git commit, right? So at times that opportunity to, to remove technical debt is actually motivating in some ways because you feel like you're, it's taken away from your shoulders. But, you know, the trick is getting that time to prioritize it because when it's not feature delivery, as I'm sure everyone knows, every engineer um, who's listening to this is like, yeah, but, you know, I, I've got to do some feature delivery. And, you know, this is why we take the kind of approach that I'm talking about where it's like, can we combine this removal of technical debt with some sort of related upgrade. We, we did that with the landing pages this time around, actually. Just as a, a super minor example, Drupal 8's landing pages, when we launched Drupal 8, used the OG theme module. So they actually were themed totally separately from the rest of Drupal.org, and there's some overhead to doing that. And by the time we got to Drupal 9, we'd, had, we'd added new editorial tools to Drupal.org for, for our own internal landing page building, and we just didn't need any of that. So Neil got to, to remove quite a lot of quote code. How much was it, Neil? It was a theme based on the Omega-based theme. So it was like 40,000 lines of code from Omega. That's a good day. That's a nice commit. Uh, I mean, Neil, do you want to talk a little bit more about, that, uh, about Preston's question, about just like what it feels like managing this much legacy? Yeah, I mean, it's, I always try to clean as I go and, you know, try to leave less technical debt when implementing a feature than, than before. So yeah, the landing pages was a big one. We still have the, the one kind of, I guess, Drupal 6 era uh, landing page we have is the Drupal 7 launch page, which is a custom template, which has held up pretty well, but it's, it's not something that will be going in the same form into uh, Drupal 9. And yeah, doing some work with community on the getting involved guide. That's old book pages, which most of the other book pages have been migrated into other content types. There are more, more modern, you know, entity references to keep track of the hierarchies and who's maintaining what. So providing ways for those to be migrated away will have one less content type to migrate. And there was another one of those old landing pages that able to get rid of and yeah with new features trying to find ways uh doing stuff with you know related to GitLab, for instance doing that in a more headless way if we don't need the data in our database so hopefully the javascript rewrite is won't need too much work if any work once it's shifted into the new platform I think that's one of the things that a lot of people forget about the kind of, you know, the, the amount of legacy that Drupal has amassed, you know, and it's, and it's, and it's legacy in both senses of the word, not just, you know, old, old craft, but also an incredible historical kind of, you know, journey that that Drupal has gone down. And I think it's really interesting now that we're moving into these ideas of how do we address not just the technical debt in PHP, but also in JavaScript and some of the client-side code that is now being introduced. It's very interesting. Um, now, Ryan, I want to get you in on this too. Since you also said that you're responsible for some of this technical debt, what's it been like for you from the inside? You know, how, how does it feel to be undertaking this kind of renewal? And you know, I think this, this, this simultaneous approach of saying, we're going to add new features and you know, in the process replace some of our technical debt was a really interesting approach. What's it been like for you on the inside? Well, I think from a system's perspective, at some point, you always end up hating what you've built. So 
<laughs> being able to shut off things that have definitely outlived their not usefulness but outlived their quality is uh satisfying like when we went to GitLab, being able to turn off the old git servers where we had a custom written twisted conch ssh daemon that was spawning off git processes that wouldn't close correctly because there were hanging file descriptors and i had a reaper script that would go and clean them every 15 minutes that was very satisfying and so and i'm currently working on replacing our nfs cluster that i may have built in college <laughs> so it's it's very satisfying from the infrastructure side we're close to not done but at a point where we could pivot into not just legacy but also new ways of running things getting containerization into it supporting drupal 8 drupal 9 being able to change workflow a bit it's getting more exciting but there has certainly been a lot of legacy to work through well, I think that I think we can all agree that we have the best folks available. And Ryan, Tim, and Neil, I think you know you three. You know, certainly are part of this dream team of folks that are really responsible for stewarding, uh, for for acting as community stewards, not only for things that are visible, but also all of the invisible aspects of Drupal that we all uh, rely on on a daily basis. So thank you all for uh, that insight. And I hope that our audience also gained a lot of insight into how uh, the day-to-day -day of um, someone at the Drupal Association works and how it goes. And with that, I want to go into something completely different. We have a little segment at our Tag One Team Talk show called the Aside Tag. It's about a minute per participant on the call. And what we do is we share something that's going on in our real lives. An example could be, you know, I learned about a skill or I just cooked a new recipe. Um, and I want to start today with uh, Tim. Tim, what's going on in your world? Yeah, so obviously we've been um, sheltering in place uh, throughout, well, pretty much anybody listening to this is probably in the same situation. And some of the regulations are a little bit more relaxed. So lately I've been trying to figure out socially distant day trips. So I'm in Portland, Oregon. So I took a drive up to the McClellan Overlook in Southern Washington, which has views of Mount St. Helens, and it's kind of a remote kind of back road up, up that way. So that was very cool. And I found an, an app that's mostly for motorcycle riders, actually, called Calimoto. That's just really cool. It helps build scenic trips. It actually sort of deliberately avoids straight line highways and takes you on the, the scenic back roads. So that's been fun and a nice way to feel like I'm not just stuck at home all the time. Wonderful. Well, I'm excited to hear more about that. And uh, I'm very jealous. You know, I, I, I gosh, I, I haven't been outdoors, you know, outside of the city in a long time. So looking forward to seeing those photos. How about you, Narayan? I said outdoors and I got concerned. <laughs> yeah, I've been looking for things to do around my house proper. And so have been getting into uh, macro photography, which is uh, photography of very small things. Or actually, it's technically, it's a lens that has one-to-one -one reproductions so that you can fill the frame with something very small and have a lot of detail. And it's been very interesting because it's totally different. Like all the, the rules are all the same, but it's just very, very finicky. And you have to be very stabilized and well lit. And so it's been fun and you can do it in the front yard because when you're doing that, the front yard is gigantic. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm looking forward to seeing those photos too. <laughs> Neil, you know, we're in the same city. Uh, I haven't seen you in months. What's going on in your world? Yeah, I've been 
pretty well confined here with the small apartments here, but we have a roof that's pretty safe up here, so can't get outside a little get, get a bit of sunlight. Replaced my bike commute with push-ups. Been actually getting more into, you know, I got involved with Drupal uh, infrastructure, Drupal.org infrastructure through volunteering, working on api.drupal.org, but I, you know, it used to be, I, that was what I did on the, for a few hours on a weekend, but I really hadn't been doing that stuff outside of work for a while, but now it's all kind of blending together, but yeah, getting some, working on some fun stuff on the side that's not necessarily driven by our roadmap. Well, Neil, I will say that even just one push-up of yours is more physical activity than I've done this entire lockdown. So uh, <laughs> props to you. Uh, Myers, what's going on in your world? Well, I live outdoors. We, we live in a rural area right now, missing the city a lot. But my problem, and I've talked about this saga on many of our talks, is uh, a good internet connection, which is why I'm sitting at the local firehouse right now. And I recently learned, so I, I found a hill on our property that I can get a cell phone signal with uh, on, a, on, a, on a mast. <laughs> so I've been doing a lot of research on how I get from this antenna down to the house, which is, you know, over a third of a mile away. And, you know, there's all sorts of different options and I'm not sure what the most cost effective is, but I didn't know that power over ethernet extenders existed for both like, your, you know, your traditional cat, you know, five and six cables, as well as like uh, power over coax. So that, that was really fascinating to me that you can run ethernet over things like coax with power for, you know, four or 5,000 feet. So super cool. Uh, and you can no, amp it there. What's that? Then you can amp it there. Ah, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, I got connectors. My concern is like voltage drop over distance. Now I need to, uh, I need some help. Maybe I'll, I'll tap you, Narayan, <laughs> to make sure that at the end of that line, I'm going to have enough to, to make it work. But I mean, I electrocuted myself a lot in the data center, <laughs> so I wouldn't trust me that much. <laughs> <laughs> Plan B is like a solar setup with batteries, but you know, anyway. You know, Ryan, I wonder if those shocks led to some of these great ideas that you have all the time. <laughs> all right, well, now it's my turn on the aside tag. And, you know, obviously here in the United States, we are undergoing a period of, of deep pain and suffering uh, this week. And I do want to take my, to dedicate my section of the aside tag to the pain that everyone who is watching and supporting Black Lives Matter and who are seeing what is going on in the United States to pay attention. We did have a moment of silence for George Floyd and all of the other victims of police brutality over the last few years on our last episode. But today, instead of sharing an update of my personal life, I would just like to acknowledge the losses of, the incalculable losses of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and I want to encourage also everyone who is watching this, if you are located in the United States or if you have local organizations to support, there are lots of organizations uh, that are uh, partnering with Black Lives Matter and partnering with anti-racist groups to prevent these events and um, these horrible circumstances from ever happening again, working hard to fight for the right kind of policing and the right kind of politics that we need in this country. I want to call out a few organizations here. Uh, Color of Change, Black Visions Collective, BlackLivesMatter.org, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Reclaim the Block, 
These are all great organizations that I highly encourage our audience to donate to and support in this time of need. And I also want to highlight one of TagOne's own uh, cherished customers, our own uh, cherished client, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, is one of our TagOne customers. We deeply cherish them and their work. And I highly encourage all of you, please, to donate and support all of these initiatives and organizations. With that, this is all the time we have today. So I want to say thank you so much to our guests and our uh, panelists today. All the links that we have been passing along throughout this episode are online with this talk. And if you did enjoy this episode, please remember to upvote, subscribe, share it with your friends and family, share it with your grandma who's uh, still quarantined, I hope. And check out, of course, past talks at tag1.com slash tag team talks. And as always, we'd love to hear your feedback on any topic suggestions about this show, Tag One Team Talks, or about our sibling show, Core Confidential, the Insider Guide to Drupal Core. The way to do that is to send us a little note at Tag Team Talks at TagOneConsulting.com. I want to really give a big uh, thank you to Narayan, Tim, Neil, and also Michael today for joining us on this episode. And uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>